All right, let's pray, and we're going to get started. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, as we've been looking into this method of inductive Bible study that we can learn how to study and understand your word. We want to understand it rightly. We want to do as your word commands us to do. Um, We want to avoid twisting the scriptures in any way. Lord, I just pray that you'd guide this uh, process for us. Guide this discussion. Help me to speak truthfully and accurately. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, just to refresh us on a little bit where we are with our study, inductive Bible study, we are, at, we are in the interpretation phase. We have gone through five steps in observation, and we made note of different things, and now we're working through our interpretation phase and where we're at with this. So this is the uh, broad strokes, all the way zoomed out. This is the Bible study process, observation, interpretation, application. So here we are in interpretation and we are breaking down interpretation into five steps, five sub-steps. And we're on step number two, interpretive correlation is where we're at today. Well, what does that mean? What is interpretive correlation? Well, just really simply, it's simply the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture that we have is the Scriptures themselves. Oops. Uh, God has given us His Word, and Scripture references itself, right? So the Scripture uh, was written by about 40 or so different authors spanning across 2,000 years of time. Go all the way back to the very first book that was penned, which may have been either Genesis or the book of Job, depending on, uh, on who is trying to, trying to figure all those things out. Some people think Job was the first book written, but all the way forward to the book of Revelation, we have this in immense uh, period of time, about 2,000 years, we got about 40 different authors all writing, and everything is completely harmonious, right? We, we talked about in the observation stage at a couple different places, we talked about the, the harmony principle. This is a principle that states that Scripture is harmonious with itself. It is not self-contradictory. There is different information contained in different places. There's theology taught in different places throughout Scripture, but it all harmonizes together. So as we talk about the concept of Scripture, interpreting Scripture, this quote, this, uh, we've been using that book, uh, Inductive Bible Study by Kostenberger and Furr, and um, on your sheets there should be a, actually let me grab a copy of that just so I can see what's in front of you guys as well. You see that quotation there where it says, because... There is one divine author who superintended the whole of Scripture. We can expect that Scripture will ultimately harmonize. We recognize there are 40 different authors across all of the 66 books of the Bible, right? We recognize that fact. But we also recognize the dual authorship of the Bible. There is a human author, but there's also the divine author for any given text, whereby God is inspiring the words themselves. He is, we learned about this from Henry last week, right? He, God, literally God breathed words of Scripture, the, the utterance of God, the words of God. And God, then we talked about the process of the superintending work of the Holy Spirit guiding the human authors so that what they wrote was exactly what God wanted to communicate. And so if there is one divine author, we should expect there to be harmony across all of the biblical text. There's no two texts that contradict each other. Now, there are places where we read and we see things, and it's hard for us. There are some challenging places where 
It's not contradictory, but at first glance, if we're not rightly understanding the context, we might think, you know what, that's, um, that's contradictory. But no, as we get into it a little bit further and we understand things on a little bit deeper level and we understand the context, we find that no, nothing is contradictory, it is harmonious. Now, as we begin to consider Scripture interpreting Scripture, there's, this, there's a concept of what we would call correlation between texts, and the closer you are to what I'm going to call the home text, the closer you are to the home text, the greater degree of correlation you should expect to find. Okay, so the home text, that's the text that we're studying at any given point, all right? This morning, we're going to, Jim's going to be preaching from the book of Mark, right? Mark chapter 8, that's the home text, right? Well, the closer you are to the home text, the greater degree of correlation you will find in terms of vocabulary, themes, and theology, right? That should be a little bit of a common sense principle, right? The closer you are to the home text and context, the greater degree of correlation you'll find. And as you move away from the home context, there is lesser continuity, but there's still going to be harmony, right? So there's lesser continuity in terms of common themes and vocabulary and theology, but there's still harmony. So if you got Paul over here and James over here, and they're using different they're different uh, vocabulary, they're using different language, uh, but there's still going to be harmony between the texts, even if there is a different communication, uh, a different, uh, different goal, a different theology being uh, taught through that. So as you move away from the home context, there is going to be uh, lesser continuity, but there's still going to be harmony uh, within the texts. I'm going to illustrate this with a, with a graphic up on the screen. And there's a slightly different graphic on your handout there. The closer you are with the same author in the same book, the greater degree of continuity. So you should expect to see, hey, you know what? Uh, when Paul uses the word righteousness within the book of Romans, he uses it all throughout the book of Romans. And you should expect that there's a high degree of probability that Paul is probably having the same definition for the concept of righteousness throughout the entirety of the book, Right? That should be our expectation. Well, if we move to a, the same author in a different book, we can still think that there's probably going to be a high degree of correlation in terms of vocabulary and theology and things, although because of the differences in purpose in writing and time of writing and things like that, there may be slightly differences in, in the uh, vocabulary and things that are there. So uh, we just need to understand things on that level. When there's the same author in a different book, there's lesser continuity, but there's still going to be some. Well, the further you get away, the lesser degrees of continuity that you're going to find. So you might have a different author within the same testament. Two authors in the Old Testament speaking in different, uh, to different uh, contexts, different audiences. Uh, there may be some overlap in themes and theology and vocabulary and such, but it's going to be lesser than looking at the same author within the same testament or the same author within the same testament, and then finally moving out, different author in different testament, uh, we're going to find greater degrees of l less continuity in terms of vocabulary and themes and language and such, but it's still going to be harmonious, right? So you look at Isaiah in the Old Testament and John in the New Testament, they're different authors, they're in different testaments, they're writing to different peoples in different places at different times, there's still harmony, even if there's lesser continuity in terms of purpose, themes, vocabulary, etc. 
So that's just a, a good principle for us to keep in mind as we are beginning to compare Scripture with Scripture. And we're going to illustrate why this is important for us to remember in just a little bit. <clears throat> a few things to keep in mind. Not all texts are as related as they may seem at first glance. Okay? Um, in our English Bibles, we have translations of Hebrew and Greek, right? The Old Testament prim- primarily was written in Hebrew. There are some Aramaic sections, but for the most part, it's Hebrew. In the New Testament, it's Greek. There are times when we're, re- we're reading our Old Testament and our New Testament where we may make connections in our minds with Old Testament texts and New Testament texts, thinking that there's a continuity there, but it's the same word in English, but the underlying words are different in the original languages. And so there may not be quite as much continuity as we initially first thought there might have been uh, at first glance. So, for example... Um, Phil, or, uh, yeah, Phil, would you mind looking up uh, Job chapter 23, verse 20? Did I write it wrong? Ruh-roh, I got a typo. Might be 32. Yakar, um, will you hand me that book right there? Well... We need James 1.12, and we need 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 as well. So you got 1 Peter. Jim, you've got James. Phil, I will hang with me for a second. Um, oh, it's Job 23.10. I just, it's not 20, it's Job 23.10. So you want to make that correction on your handouts as well. Go ahead, Phil. You can grab that mic in front of you. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. All right. He shall, I shall come out as gold. All right, go ahead and read James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the... So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, so we have here, we've got common references to gold. We've got common references to trials and tribulations and testings and things. Well, are these New Testament texts referencing this text in Job? Some people think it is referencing, but when we're looking at the underlying text, of course, we're dealing with two different languages. So we've got different words for t- trials and testings in the original languages. And even when the Hebrews translated into the Septuagint, we still are dealing with some language differences there. And so it may, and, and then we, when we look at the context that both of those are found in, 
the purpose and the, what is intended to be communicated by those contexts are different. Uh, they're more different than they are similar. So maybe those texts aren't as related as, some, as they might seem to be at first glance. So what we're after is valid connections. We're after valid connections between texts. Just because words share common vocabulary does not necessarily automatically mean they are related and we should read them in light of one another. We have to consider the individual context of both texts to know if they actually have a relationship to one another. This process is important because it does help us guard against bad theology. For example, James chapter 2 verse 24 uh, who was in James? Uh, Jim, you want to go ahead and flip over there to James 2.24 and then Romans 4.5. Phil, could you get that one for me? Romans 4.5. Go ahead, Jim. James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay justified by works and not faith alone. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, Phil, go ahead and read Romans 4, 5. Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Yeah. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So we have James who says, oh, no, yeah, you're, you're, you're justified by works and not faith only. And Paul says, well, you're justified by faith apart from works. Well, now, the, uh, the passage in James, that's a Roman Catholic's favorite text. Because, oh, you, we need works. This, this shows that, that our system of our, our sacramental system and all this, this is important because we need works for our salvation. And Paul seems to be saying, no, 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 you don't need works for your salvation. We're justified by faith alone. Well, how do we blend these two texts together? How do we understand them? Well, if we're, if we're keeping in mind the clarity of Romans 4, 5 and everything that's taught throughout the entirety of the book of Romans, we're justified by faith apart from any works of the law. Then we also consider Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast, right? It's a gift of God. Well, how do then do we understand James 2, 24, where he says we're justified by our works and not by faith alone? That's, that seems to be contradictory until we start to consider the context of James and what James is driving at, where James is really trying to drive home the point that when we do have true faith, it is going to produce fruit and works within our lives. And the concept of justification in the book of James, who is a different author writing to a different audience than Paul writing to the Romans, the concept of justification in the book of James, uh, many argue that that's more of the concept of justification before men rather than a justification before God. And when we examine the context, we begin to understand what that means uh, clearly that way. So when we're, when we're comparing Scripture with Scripture, we have an opportunity to avoid bad theology. If we're just looking at James 2.24 by itself in isolation, we can understand and rightly understand the meaning of that text by itself when we consider the context in which it is found, but our understanding is also enhanced 
when we're comparing it to other texts that speak to similar things theologically or thematically. I hope that makes sense. So when we're even comparing across, you know, across Scripture, whether it's within the same, same book, same testament, um, or you know, between testaments or authors, would, would a, another context to look at, I guess, I, for a lack of a better phrasing, the dispensational context as well? Uh, yes. Um, I mean, if we look at the dispensation as God's, the way God is structured or ordered mm-hmm. things that, you know, what, while what God says is true and he's consistent, that, yeah. but that's going to add a context to, you know, to understanding applicability across the scripture. Absolutely. So, we, when we were walking through the observation stages, that was one of the steps, right, where we were identifying, we're making an observation about what what covenant are we in, right? So we're looking at the biblical covenants. There's the, you know, the uh, Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant. Like there's the different covenant. There's the new covenant. Well, what covenant are we in? It were, what covenant was this scripture given under and given to and that sort of thing? Well, yeah, that's all going to, as we are comparing texts with one another, we do need to keep that in mind about the, as we're comparing the texts. Hey, what covenant, what you know, dispensation are we in? as we're looking at those individual texts. That is something that we need to keep in mind, absolutely. Um, finally here, just before we start looking into some particular use cases, connecting the dots, okay, uh, there's data points. All throughout Scripture, we got data points. When we're, we got individual texts, they're teaching different pieces of theology, they're doing these different things, they're communicating different truths, and then those dots are connected to each other. Well, connecting them takes practice, right? No one should expect to be a pro at this process the first time you're studying Scripture. Right now, I am taking a class called Scripture Citing Scripture, looking at the different ways that the scriptural authors cited other scriptural texts within their writings. Old Testament use of the Old Testament. New Testament use of the Old Testament. How do the different authors use the Scriptures themselves? Well, I've got a book that's literally this thick that I have to read through about all the different ways the Old Testament writers use the New Testament writers. Well, there's no way that someone like, okay, as I think back on my life, I know more about the Scriptures and where different things are located today than when I first got saved. Praise God for that. Right, that should be the case. As we're studying the Scriptures, as we get to know the Word of God, as we get to get to know our Savior, we're just going to know more things because we've grown and we've learned. Well, hopefully, by the end of this semester, I'll know more about the use of Scripture within itself because of virtue of this class. Hopefully, in 10 years from now, I'll still know even more than what I even know right now or will know at the end of the semester. We're always growing, right? It's always this, it's a process of learning and growing, and connecting the dots does take practice until as we begin to grow in our biblical literacy, there are different tools that can help us, a good study Bible can help us out. Have any of you ever heard of the treasury of Scripture knowledge? The treasury of Scripture knowledge is this guy back in the 1800s. It is fancy. It's a big old tome of a book as well. You can look up any individual text in there, and he will have just a chunk of cross-references for each verse. So it's like that. That means that we see on the internet of like the yes. connections, but it's broken down into 
Yes, it is really cool. And this guy did it before there were computers. All right, he just had he had, he had all his Bible spread out, and he was flipping, flipping, and you know, making notes and all these things, making all these connections. It is this little something, but it's. The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, and if you go onto the back of your hand, or no, uh, at the bottom, there's an online resource. You can get a print form. It's a little hard to use, but if you, you can go online and you can get that resource there, tsk-online.com. Um, you guys know what a Thompson Chain Reference Bible is? Yeah. Yeah, so there's... <laughs> it's <laughs> do you want them it's it's not it's a uh, think of it as like a study bible in terms of how many cross references there are except in place of all study notes is just cross references there's a whole bunch of cross references and it's Thompson chain because he's chaining text together you can go from one text to the next text and you can get go down a rabbit hole looking down a bunch of things so there's these connecting points now the caution I would give to you is that you remember we looked at this Job 2310 and these James. So in these, in these, in these references, these um, resources that I'm talking to you about, they may connect those points together because there's common English language. We have to read discerningly. Not all texts are as related as they might seem. But it is a good way to begin us getting used to this process of seeing connections. So that was going to be my question. So with those two particular resources, you said the Thompson Chain and the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, do they link together a cross-reference based on just, well, it has this same English word in the verse, so we're going to link it, whether contextually it's talking about the same thing or it's the same underlying name. There's a spectrum. Language. Okay. Yeah, there's a spectrum. I mean, some of it, there's going to be, some of it is thematically linked. Some of it is vocabularily linked. Some of it is character linked, like, oh, here's David. Here's other places David shows up. Or here's, um, here's Epaphroditus. Well, here's other places Epaphroditus shows up type of thing. Uh, do you know if they have uh, the Thompson Chain Reference Bible, which I used for years, in an ESV? I, I, Phil, uh, Jim says they do. It, okay. It just came out, I want to say, within the last couple of years. So, that would be very helpful. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to keep moving because we got some examples to go through of ways that we're, things, dots that we're looking for, all right? It takes practice, it takes time to learn the dots. Well, what even dots are things that we can look for? We're going to use, just as it are, just our initial case in point, Jeremiah 29, 11. This is a famous text, right? For I know the, for, uh, for you, uh, what is it? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, like plans for good and welfare, not for, not for bad things, Right? I'm paraphrasing a little bit there, but that's <laughs> Jeremiah 29:11. For some people, this is like their life verse. Oh, yes, God knows the plans He has for me, plans to prosper me. This is what God wants for me. Well, yeah, to give you a future and a hope, yes. Well, what are things that we should consider when looking at Jeremiah 29:11? Well, there's the, there's the historical context that we need to consider, Right? Uh, there's exile. Babylon has come and destroyed Israel. Uh, they've taken Judah into captivity, into Babylon, and the, the people are devastated by this. Uh, as we look back at Jeremiah chapter 24, let's look at that and see how it starts out. And I'm going to go ahead and read it just for sake of time here because we've got a lot of ground to cover yet. Jeremiah 24 verse 1 says, After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem... 
Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, the fir- like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so that the, ba- so that the bad could not be eaten. And this is what the Lord, and the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs, the good figs, uh, the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad. So bad that they cannot be eaten. All right, so it's like, okay, there's this vision. Uh, okay, what's going on there? Uh, well, when we consider that there's the historical context, the time, pay attention to the time when uh, that was written, when these people had been taken away, uh, Babylon, they'd gone to Babylon, that had happened. Okay, now when we consider the context of Jeremiah 29, we read verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Oh, hey, there's a, a historical connecting point with chapter 24, same time period. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. Oh, hey, the same characters that we were just talking about. They're, they're being taken away as well. The letter was sent by the hand of Elash, the son of... Okay, and then it goes on and describes the letter. There's a historical correlation that we find between Jeremiah 24 and 29 that's going to help us understand is Jeremiah 29. Literary correlation. If we were to consider to continue reading the vision of the figs, we see that God is going to destroy the figs and they're, they're going to be done with, but God has good things in mind for the good figs. Well, when we come to Jeremiah 29, we see some of the same language and some of the same reference referred to when Jeremiah starts saying, oh, I, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. I'm gonna, I'm, I've got plans for welfare to make, give you a future and a hope. Ah, well, that's some of the same kind of language that was talked about the figs in Jeremiah 24. So we should see a connecting point there. God says also in Jeremiah 29 that there's going to be judgment upon those who have forsaken the Lord. Well, that corresponds to the bad figs. So there's a literary correlation with some of the same language that's used. That gives us another understanding for how we should understand this letter that Jeremiah wrote and this prophecy that he wrote in Jeremiah 29. And finally, there's a theological correlation that we should be seeing. There's echoes of the new covenant with this when we consider... Uh, there's a, uh, the, these, this promise to Israel that God's going to restore them, that God's going to bring them back into the land. He's going to do all these good things for them. Ah, Jeremiah is going to talk about the new covenant that's going to be in Jeremiah chapter 31. We're also going to see the new covenant talked about in Ezekiel chapters, uh, I think it's uh, chapters 36 and 37. We can also hearken back to Deuteronomy chapter 30 where God makes a promise that, okay, you know, when you rebel against me, but then if you repent, then I'll restore you and I'll do all these great things for you. So there's a theological correlation that we can draw from looking backwards to the law, to Deuteronomy, where there's the promise of restoration, and then looking forward to the new covenant that ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and awaits a, a complete fuller fulfillment with the um, with the, uh, the, the um, millennial kingdom when Jesus Christ returns to earth and establishes his kingdom and restores Israel uh, to their land. So we see all of this going on. There's all this correlation in things. Well, we see now this correlation between Scripture texts informs how we understand 
Jeremiah 29.11, where it says, I know the plans I have for you. Is that talking about me personally? No, it's not. Does that mean it doesn't have application for me? It does have application. What's the application then? Now we're jumping ahead a little bit, but if we think about application of passages that don't refer directly to us, that weren't written as promises directly to us, we think about the nature and the character of God. He's a covenant-keeping God. God has made a promise. He's going to keep it. It's sure you can take it to the bank. God's going to keep the promises that He has made with me as well. So that jumps ahead to application, getting way ahead of, hell, way ahead of myself. So, there's historical correlation, literary correlation, theological correlation. I am talking a mile a minute here going rapidly fast because we're rapidly running out of time. <laughs> Let's keep moving forward. Correlating historical content. This is why we have handouts, right? Because it's going to be like, oh, I'm drinking from a fire hose. Okay, now let me go home, <laughs> look over my handout here. Let's try to soak this in a little bit more. All right, the fire hose is done. Let's just kind of soak in the information for a little bit. Right, that's the idea. Uh, correlating historical content. Most historical connections are related between passages involve narrative sequencing. This happened after that, right? You're reading the narrative, you're reading the story, it's just the sequence of events, then this happened, then this happened, we're moving through the book of Mark, we're seeing the narrative sequencing uh, flow out from that. We also see that in Jeremiah 24 and 29, there's a narrative sequencing there. There's also narrative causal inference. This happened because of that, right? So an event will unfold, and uh, so last, I think uh, several weeks ago, we looked at the passage of Kings where there's the exile that happened, and then the narrator in Kings interrupts and says, this happened because the people of Israel, they forsake the Lord, they started worshiping these idols, they started intermarrying with these, with these pagan women, they started doing all these abominable practices before the Lord, so God kept His promise to bring them into exile. That's why this happened, okay? There's a causal inference there. This happened because of that. That's going to help us understand what's going on in the text. And there's parallel passages, two texts describing the same approximate events. An example of this, Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. Man, we're running out of time for these examples, but they're so good. It's so cool to see these. <clears throat> um, Ruth, could you look up uh, Ezra chapter 5, verse 1 and read that? Now the prophet… Could you grab the mic? I'm sorry. It's helpful for the… There, there, there are people watching online today. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Context here, the people had come back into the land. They were seeking to rebuild the temple. They started the process and then they quit working on the temple. Well, now God raises up Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the people Build the temple. You got to get busy on this. Well, so what do we do? We read these names. Do the, are those names familiar? Haggai and Zechariah. Are they familiar? Oh, yeah. They wrote books, didn't they? We have their prophecies. We know what they said to the people. So we can flip over to Haggai and we can read. If we were to flip over there, it would say, this is the prophecy of Haggai the prophet when he spoke to the people of Israel to rebuild the temple. And then you flip over to Zechariah and there's that passage where it says, you're familiar with this, do not despise the day of small beginnings. Have you heard that text? That's in Zechariah. That's about the temple. Don't despise the day of small beginnings of rebuilding this temple. It's gonna be great. 
but you have to trust the Lord and you have to do the work. You gotta press forward. And so we have, there's, there's this uh, parallel passage correlation that we should do and we see, oh, there's Haggai and Zechariah. I wonder what they said and we can flip over to those passages and we can understand better the context of Ezra. When I was teaching through Ezra, we spent a little bit of time in Haggai and Zechariah when we came to this text. That's like two and a half years ago, so I don't expect any of us to remember that. Um, you guys weren't even here for that. Um, but yeah, so, so we make these correlations and it helps us understand the home text. Uh, there's, we want to correlate literary content as well. Uh, this is where word studies come into play, and we're going to get into word studies more uh, fully in future weeks. Uh, the use of words throughout Scripture, so we think of uh, Colossians 1.15, the meaning of firstborn, where it says that you were the firstborn of all creation. Well, the Mormons say he was, the, he was one of the first of the created beings, or the Jehovah's Witness was to say the same thing. He's the first of all created angelic beings. Well, how do we understand the word firstborn? So if we examine how the concept of the firstborn son is used throughout Scripture, we find that it's sometimes, in some context, it does refer to first in order, but a lot of times it's talking about preeminence. So there are sons of, of Jacob. Who is the firstborn son of Jacob? Reuben. Do we hear about Reuben being the firstborn son? It's not really something that's focused on. Instead, we hear a lot about Judah, right? We hear a lot about, even a lot about Joseph. These individuals had preeminence despite not being the firstborn. Jacob himself was not the firstborn son, and yet he had preeminence. And so the concept of the firstborn is used to communicate preeminence. That helps us understand the use of a word in its home context. Also, grammatical and literary structures. Uh, so Genesis 3.16 and 4.7 is an example of this, and I'm just going to briefly explain what's going on here. Uh, this is the text where there's the curse upon uh, humanity for their sin and the curse upon the woman is that there's going to be pain and childbearing and it says that there's going to be struggle between her and her husband her desire will be for him yet uh, he shall rule over her well what does it mean her desire shall be for him there's different ways people have interpreted that some people have interpreted that as as a um, just a, a sexual desire for her husband because uh, well the it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing because there's pain in childbearing and yet there's still that desire and so there's, there's a conflict, there's a struggle there. Is that what's going on there? Well, when we look at chapter 4, verse 7, we find the same grammatical construction that's used where Cain is, has killed his brother and God is talking with Cain and he's warning him, hey, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you to rule over you. And it's the same grammatical construction that's found in chapter 3. And so when we look at those common features, we have a better understanding of chapter 3. Say, okay, this, this issue between a husband and wife is about kind of a power struggle. There's authority struggle within the home where God has designed uh, the man to be the head of the home and, and uh, to be the loving leader there. And, uh, but now because of the curse of sin, there's this power dynamic struggle going on that she desires to, to, to take... Um, kind of usurp that authority in that way, the same way that sin is trying to gain mastery over humanity, there's power struggles now within the marital relationship. And so through grammatical and literary structures, we can have a better understanding of the home text. So we want to correlate those things. And a lot of times, good, um, good commentaries help us with this process. <clears throat> I've got two minutes to try to tackle theological content. 
I've been ta- I feel like I've been talking so fast. Whew. Yeah. All right, there's a quotation on your handout. It's up here on the screen as well. What are we doing with correlating theological content? The purpose of this is not necessarily to develop theology right off the bat, but we do want to understand the theological content and correlate them together. So we have this quotation from the book. As an aspect of interpretive correlation, we're simply recognizing that theological relationships often do inform the interpretation of individual texts by drawing on the inferred relationships between them or within theological themes and motifs, interpretive insights is achieved. So, for example, Genesis 1.27 says, I will make man in my image after my likeness, right? He created male and female after the image of God, image and likeness of God. Well, we may have a theological question. Oh, we're created in the image of God. Well, I have flesh and bone. Does this mean God has flesh and bone? That's a theological question raised from the concept of the image of God. Well, how do we answer that question? The answer isn't in Genesis 1.27 on its own. Well, when we begin to look throughout Scripture and we can see different passages that speak about Okay, Colossians 3.10 says that we're being renewed after the image of our creator. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says, talks about we're made as a new creation in Christ, where we're being conformed to the image of Christ. John uh, 4.24 says that God is spirit. These verses aren't designed to directly answer the question, hey, um, being made in the image of God doesn't mean that God's got a body. That's not the purpose of these verses, Right? But there's theology that is taught there that implies the answer to the question that was raised with Genesis 1.27 about what it means to be made in the, image of, in the image of God. It's a spiritual thing. It's not necessarily about our flesh and bone, right? And so there's things that we can understand that the theological correlation together, when we understand theology across all of Scripture, it can inform our and refine our understanding of an individual text. Now, this can go too far. We can go too far with this because we can think we are latching hold of a theological idea over here and we can shoehorn it into other texts in ways that it doesn't fit and it doesn't work. And we need to be very careful about that. I think this is a danger that we get into when we start developing our theological systems. Systems can be helpful. Systems can be good for trying to see how the pieces fit together. But if we go too far with trying to make our systems work, we can distort passages of Scripture, and we don't want to take things too far with that. So I just want to kind of issue that um, caution for us. That's theological content. Conclusion. All right, so I've talked a lot. We want to connect dots. There's historical dots. There's literary dots, there's theological dots, we connect them together to help us answer, well, what do we do when um, we don't even know where the dots are to be found, or even if they exist at all? What do we do, right? This is a quotation again from the book. The truth is, while there are helpful resources to assist the work of interpretive correlation, treasury of scripture knowledge, a good study Bible, commentaries, etc. There's no substitute for biblical literacy and familiarity with the basic contents of scripture. The guy who put together the treasury of scripture knowledge, and it's actually been updated. There's an updated version called the new treasury of scripture knowledge. It's, it's got some more 
links and stuff in it. There's over 500,000 cross-references in there. Well, the guy that did that didn't start putting that together the first day he was a believer, right? He was studying the scripture for years. It took him decades to even put that work together. That's like his life's work right there. It's not like he put it together in a day. The more time you're in the word, the more you're going to start making those connections. This is where the concept, you know, it's, it's, it's pushed often and sometimes we can get legalistic about it and we don't need to be legalistic about it. But it's so helpful, the concept of just reading your Bible every day. And we can slow down and we can read just a paragraph a day and really dive into it. And we can speed up and we can say, okay, I'm going to... So earlier this year, the first six months of the year, I read the Bible cover to cover in six months, from January through June. Just rapidly reading so fast. I got different stuff out of that read through the Bible than I've gotten from other read throughs where I've read it through in a year. Because it, there was some text that was just so fresh in my mind that I only read just a couple of days before that I never would have made the connections before because I hadn't ever read it in that close proximity to each other. Yeah, it is. They're really zoomed out. And the purpose in that is, okay, I'm reading for speed. I'm not reading for like comprehension. I'm not stopping to wrestle with questions. It's just speed read through. But there is a benefit in that because I'm getting the whole picture zoomed out, like you said, of the whole text. Well, we don't have to read through the Bible in six months, but if we're just constantly in Scripture, our Bible reading plans take us, oftentimes they're designed to take us through the whole Bible in a year. Stuff like that is just really helpful for seeing, to begin to be able to see the dots. And the more times we do that, 2023, and then we do it in 2024, and we do it in 2025, we just keep on going through it. The more times we do that, the more we're going to start recognizing these dots and begin to tie them together. While literacy develops, there are those helpful resources like the study Bibles and commentaries, treasure, scripture, knowledge, etc. But we need to read discerningly because they don't always, sometimes they make connections that shouldn't be made, etc. So we want to be really careful about that. Yeah, that was not two minutes, no, but I got through it. Um, comments or questions before I close? Something that's just really pressing. All right. You can always ask me questions afterwards just because we close in time doesn't mean we have to close the discussion time forever. But for now, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that your word is harmonious. Thank you that we can... Uh, begin to study these dots. Lord, thank you so much that even as we continue to study Scripture over and over again, Lord, there's more things that we can glean. There's more that we can learn. Uh, and some of it is just simply by virtue of being more familiar with the text and being able to see more connections and see how Scripture interprets Scripture. What a blessing it is to know the harmony of Scripture. What a blessing it is to uh, just to see all that you have given us in your word that it is completely harmonious, non-contradictory, and you communicate who you are, you communicate uh, who we are, you communicate what you have done for us and how we should think about and view the world. What a blessing it is. May we be faithful stewards of that which you've given to us. To whom much is given, much is required. I pray that we will be faithful. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.